Welcome to the Fight for Grade Level Reading. I'm Brian Reese. With me today is Dr. Ross Green. Dr. Green is a clinical psychologist who spent 20 years on the faculty at Harvard Medical School and is now founding director of the nonprofit Lives in the Balance, which provides information and support for the collaborative and proactive solutions model of care, which he originated. He's also the author of several books, including his latest, Raising Human Beings, Creating a Collaborative Partnership with Your Child. We're very lucky to have Dr. Green here in the studio today, thanks to Sarasota's 40 Carats Family Center, which brought him to the area for their annual community speaker event. Dr. Green, thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about collaborative and proactive solutions as a model of care for parents and caregivers and teachers and pretty much everyone. Well, the first thing to say about collaborative and proactive solutions is that it is not the way we have typically done things when it comes to disciplining our children. For a long time, what, we've been most, we have, what we have been mostly focused on is their challenging behavior, and we've been trying to modify their behavior mostly by rewarding them and punishing them. And if that's how one of your listeners was raised, well, that's the way it had always been done. But what we learned along the way is that, number one, we're losing a lot of kids by treating them that way, because often when that way isn't working, what we do is ratchet it up even further which in many instances actually causes us to lose them even more. But the biggest thing we learned along the way is that kids who have behavioral challenges are lacking skills, lots and lots of skills. Sure. And rewarding and punishing them doesn't teach them the skills that they're lacking, nor does it solve the problems that are causing their behaviors that we've been so busy modifying mm-hmm. for so long. So a lot of the things, this model calls into question a lot of the things we've been doing along the way, detentions and suspensions and paddlings in some places and hitting and timeouts. All of these very common interventions make less sense when you come to the recognition that these kids are lacking skills and have problems going on in their lives that they're having difficulty solving. In collaborative and proactive solutions, what you're doing is you are actually collaborating with the kid on solving those problems. It's not adults telling kids what the solution is. It's not adults telling the kid what to do. Once again, these are are the things we've always done. And what we've always done, we've been a little biased because it felt like what we've always done has been working at least with a meaningful percentage of kids, right? First of all, I'd probably be the first to call into question how well it was working even with well-behaved kids. (laughs) But it has definitely not been working with kids with behavioral challenges. And we lose a lot of them. Right. And that's a shame and also extremely costly to the state of Florida and every other state because when you lose a kid and he blows out of your elementary or middle or senior high school, well, now you're spending a lot of money on him, either in a special placement or in incarceration or in unemployment expenses. So it's not like we can just push this problem under the table and say we're okay. We're not okay. I would say that most of the people who interact with children uh, as a profession or because they're caregivers, I mean, they want the kids to succeed, obviously. And as you say in your book, in several of your books, I mean, kids want to succeed. They want to do well. And so it seems like the CPS approach is instead of treating the symptoms, which you do with reward and retribution, you're really treating the source of the, of the issue. That's exactly right. In, in our model, in this model, we refer to behavior as the signal or the fever. Right. What behavior mostly is, is simply the way the kid is communicating 
that there is an expectation he's having difficulty meeting. If all we do is modify the behavior, we haven't really accomplished much because we still haven't solved the problem that was causing the behavior in the first place. Right. How do you address that uh, original issue, that, uh, that expectation issue that the kids don't have the skills to reach? The first thing you do, this is what I'm telling everybody, parents and teachers, you've got to make a list of every expectation the kid is having difficulty reliably meeting. And in kids who've been getting in trouble for a very long time, that list can be very lengthy. Yeah, I saw it in Raising Human Beings. Like I started thinking about my own child, and my child is very well behaved, and he's a great kid, but I could really make, I could see 20 things in that list right away. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so there's expectations kids are having difficulty meeting. And if we make a list of them, then we know what they are. Mm -hmm. And even though that sounds sort of common sense, often we get so caught up in the moment and so caught up in the day-to-day that we lose track of the fact that these expectations they're having difficulty meeting or what we call unsolved problems Mm -hmm. are very predictable. And so what so often happens is we deal with it when it comes up in the heat of the moment, reactively, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't get solved in the heat of the moment reactively because what we're mostly dealing with in the heat of the moment is the behavior anyways, just the signal, and the problem persists. And there are many kids who've been, it's it's sad when you think about it, but I've worked with many kids in high school and middle and junior high school who've been struggling with the same unsolved problems for like five or ten years. And because people were so focused on their behavior, the problems never got solved. That's, a, that's, that's the recipe for losing a kid. Yeah. Once you've identified these, these unsolved problems, what are the next steps? The, uh, there's three steps that are involved in solving a problem collaboratively and proactively. Right. Uh, the first is called the empathy step, and that's where you are gathering information from the kid mm-hmm. about what's making it hard for the kid to meet that expectation. And as I always say, kids have information we badly need. Your number one source of information on what's making it hard for a kid to meet a particular expectation is the kid. The problem with that, of course, is that number one, many people haven't made their list, so they're dealing with all of this stuff in the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. Number two, they haven't prioritized, so they're busy working on everything at once in the heat of the moment when it pops up, right? The word proactive is really crucial here. But there's various strategies that can be used because adults frequently don't know exactly how to get that information out of a kid. Mm -hmm. Lots of strategies that can be used that are in raising human beings and the explosive child that help adults know, here's how you gather information from a kid. That's step number one. We got to figure out what's making it hard for the kid to meet that expectation. There's another problem with that, and that is that we adults frequently think that we don't really need to know what's getting in the kid's way. We will just um, punish him until he does it. Right. Or reward him until he does it. Or push him until he does it. All part of the recipe for losing a kid. Second step is called the define adult concern step. That's where the adult is entering their concern into consideration. Adult concerns usually fall into one or both of two categories. How the unsolved problem is affecting the kid. How the unsolved problem is affecting other people. It's hard to believe. But the universe of adult concerns about kids fall into just one or both of two categories. Crazy. Covers a lot of territory, though. Tons of territory. And then the third step is the invitation. And this is where adult and kid are collaborating on a solution. Right. But the thing you've got to be sure of with the solution is that it's got to meet two criteria. It's got to be realistic. Mm-hmm. 
We adults are famous for signing off on solutions we already know the kid can't do. Kids are actually fairly famous for proposing solutions they already know they can't do if they'd have thought about it a little bit. But the mutually satisfactory part is even more important. And that is that the solution has to address the concerns of both parties. Got to get this line in because it's one of my favorites. If the solution is not realistic and mutually satisfactory, I promise you this problem is still not solved. Yeah. And that's been borne out not only by my work with thousands of behaviorally challenging kids, but also by world history. Sure. I think a lot of, a lot of people enter into any negotiation with the idea of winning the negotiation. Correct. And this is not one of those that you want to win. This is one of those where everyone needs to benefit. Well, so something about that winning part. Winning is fine as long as what we're doing is win-win. The problem is that often we are so caught up in winning that it ends up that we're shooting for win-lose. Right. And those are not solutions that last. Yeah. So that's plan B. As that's called plan out. B. In, yeah. And plan A is definitely not always one you want to choose. And plan C is not one you want to choose. But plan A is the unilateral decision. Correct. Plan A is when the adult is deciding what the solution is and imposing it on the kid. And here's what I usually say about plan A. Number one, for most of human evolution, it's been very popular. But number two, plan A is about power. And power causes conflict. Right. And plan B is about collaboration. And collaboration brings people together. I think we are starting, well, we've been seeing it for a very long time. I think we are starting to see the limits of power not only in parenting, but also in terms of how we interact with each other as peoples and as countries. Right. Uh, we better figure out how to do things without power. Power causes conflict. It does. And I mean, it's one of the things that employers honestly cite more than anything else when they're looking at what they want employees trained to do before they come to them, and that is collaboration. Plan C, though, is I, I can see plan C actually coming into play sometimes more perhaps than you want the unilateral plan A, uh, and that's changing the expectation. Yeah, you're not really using plan A very much when you're using this model. Right. Uh, your problem-solving methodology in this model is plan B. Right. We save plan A for surprising, emergent scenarios involving safety. Right. But plan C are you actually using quite a bit. Plan C is where you're setting aside a particular expectation for now, primarily because a lot of these kids have many, many, many unsolved problems, and you're not going to be able to solve them all at once. A lot of times, people finally make their list, and they see all of the expectations this kid's been having difficulty meeting, and they think, good, we'll get them all done in a week. You're not getting them all done in a week, right? You're not going to be working on any more than three unsolved problems at any given point in time. Any more than three, both adult and the kid get overwhelmed. So plan C is where we are setting aside a lot of those expectations, at least for now. Comforted by the fact that the kid isn't meeting those expectations anyway, so you're not actually losing that much by making it official, by setting it aside. But plan C is also a very good way to stabilize a kid. Because any expectation, and I work typically with very volatile, unstable, reactive kids, I'd rather stabilize them with plan C than with psychotropic medication. Psychotropic medication might calm them down, but I've got side effects to worry about, and I've got the fact that we don't want this kid on medication forever to worry about. 
if I can actually just be more judicious about my expectations for a kid and stabilize him that way, that's far preferable. Mm-hmm. Well, and also it seems like medication sometimes yeah. is very effective, but also it seems like it often treats the symptoms while not building the skills that are going to allow that child to eventually, it might make it easier to learn those skills sometimes. But Correct. Pills don't teach skills. Pills sometimes make it easier for a kid to learn them. Right. One thing that I really identified with in raising humans is the section on parental anxiety. You make that list, and one reason that list is going to be really long is that I worry about a lot of stuff. Parental anxiety has a big role to play in this. You know, we live in an era in which achievement has become paramount. Right. Being a good person is no longer paramount. Values are no longer paramount. Treating people like human beings is not paramount. There's this push to achieve. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have lots of people in our society who don't who feel like there's a ceiling on what they can achieve. And they're mad about that. Right. So there's a lot of a lot of mess these days in society around achievement and a great deal of parental angst is about worrying that. You're going to hold your kid back in some way. You're not going to give him every possible opportunity that might be available to him. You're going to blow it. Right. Right. We've got to chill a little bit. <laughs> right. We've got to chill. We've got to make sure that our expectations for each individual child are specific to that specific child's capacities and skills. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean they can't learn new skills, but it also doesn't mean that Further down the road, they're not going to be able to learn them. We put, you know, I'm often asked, why are there more challenging kids these days than there have ever been? Because we put more pressure on kids these days than we have at any other point in human evolution. They've got to achieve, right? And truth is, there are some kids who are slow starters. They kick in later, Mm -hmm. right? There are some kids who are hitting the ground running. There are some kids who are going to need our help along the way. If we parents are so blinded by what we want our kids to achieve, and all of this, by the way, is done with the best of intentions, that's the fascinating part, right? Mm -hmm. All of us want the best for our kids, but we can get blinded by our ambitions for our kids, but especially by the worry that we've missed something, that we're not doing something for our kid that could possibly be done for our kid that he or she won't be the most he or she can possibly be. You know, if I took a look at myself when I was 18 years old, <laughs> uh, I wasn't even coming close to what I could possibly do. I was lucky. My parents weren't really pushing it. Mm-hmm. And I was also lucky I had some great professors at the University of Florida when I went there as an undergrad mm-hmm. who kind of were able to channel my talents into things that I would actually be good at. And here we sit. That's great. You got time. I think yet again, the whole anxiety and wanting the your child to achieve the best they can possibly achieve and give them everything that they need to get as far as they want, you really bring it back to the foundations near the end when you're talking about the key skills that you really want your child to have. And there's five of them. And number one, just like in, the, uh, in plan B, is empathy. Yes. Most of them are actually empathy-based, really. It's empathy and appreciation of actions affecting others, and resolving conflict, and taking another's perspective, and then... I mean, honesty. Are, yeah, right. and then honesty. And they're all basically 
empathetic stuff. A lot of them are related to empathy. Right. What's interesting is those skills, which I refer to as the skills that define the better human nature, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are worried that a lot of us human beings aren't being very empathic anymore and that we're not appreciating how how behavior is affecting other people and we're not doing a very good job of taking another person's perspective and we are not resolving disagreement without conflict and we are not being honest. And so one might ponder the question, how come? What happened? Now, I personally believe that our politicians are not very good role models for any of those skills, but we've always had politicians who weren't very good role models for some of those skills. Um, Bottom line is those skills need to be taught. Yeah. They need to be taught by parents. They need to be taught by educators. Educators have always been among the most important socialization agents in our society. But as I said this morning uh, during the talk that I was doing for 40 Carats, if we put high-stakes testing on teachers and we turn them into test prep robots, then you take a lot of the humanity out of the job and you make it much more difficult for a classroom teacher to be the socialization agent Mm -hmm. we've always relied on classroom teachers to be. Parents, this goes back to achievement, somewhat. Takes two incomes to produce the lifestyle that one used to. Mm -hmm. Um, We're very busy. We're much more transient, so we rely a lot less on community than we used to. There are many factors in our society that, I'll be blunt, have made it a lot harder to be a kid these days, and more bluntness have made it a lot harder for kids to learn these skills that define the better side of human nature. So we have to ask ourselves, if all we're focused on in our schools is academics, what have we really accomplished? Yeah. Well, and this is a perfect segue, because we've talked a lot about what parents can do and uh, to use this model. Tell me a little bit about how it's working in schools, Mm -hmm. and a little bit about what Lives in the Balance does to kind of help promote this model? Well, Lives in the Balance, for those who have never heard of it, is the name of the nonprofit that I created. And it, first of all, has a website that is just chock full of free resources on this model. So if people want to know, go into further detail about what we've been sitting here talking about right now, get on the Lives in the Balance website. It's there waiting for you, and it's all free. But what Lives in the Balance helps educators in schools do is... um, recognize that their disciplinary programs are often obsolete. As I always say, detentions don't solve any problems or teach any skills. Suspensions don't solve any problems or teach any skills. Expulsion doesn't. Paddling doesn't. Restraint and seclusion, which is in the news a fair amount these days in our schools, restraint meaning pinning a kid to the ground, seclusion meaning throwing the kid in a padded room, None of these interventions solve any problems or teach any skills, but a lot of these are at the core of school discipline. I should also mention school discipline, zero tolerance policies are primarily focused on behavior, Mm -hmm. the signal, the fever. Got to help schools start to focus on the problems that are causing those behaviors. Got to help educators learn how to solve problems with students collaboratively and proactively. Otherwise, we just keep doing this stuff that isn't working. Mm -hmm. And when it doesn't work, these are very expensive kids. They are expensive in terms of their own lost learning. They are expensive in terms of the lost learning of their classmates who are having their learning disruptive. 
They are expensive in terms of where we end up having to place them when they blow out of the school and where they end up, juvenile detention, when all of this focus on behavior and consequences and punitive interventions didn't get the job done. Here's what's amazing. Zero tolerance policies became popularized after Columbine and were an effort to help schools be safer. There have been over 200 school shootings since Columbine, some of the worst right here in the state of Florida. It doesn't appear that focusing on behavior and adult-imposed consequences made us safer, and there's actually studies that have been done to show that zero-tolerance policies made things worse. The problem is that way of doing things is now a habit. We're going to have to break some habits if we're going to want to make schools safer and if we're going to want to save a lot of these kids who we're presently losing. For some parents, it's difficult even when you're dealing with one child. So in schools, how do you institutionalize this model in a way that a teacher that has 25 kids can accomplish this? The same way you institutionalize those other practices (laughs) that didn't work in the first place, right? You change your policies, you change your procedures, you get rid of discipline referrals, and you turn them into problem-solving referrals. Discipline referrals are when a classroom teacher is sending a kid to the office for somebody else to deal with the problem, and that somebody else knows absolutely nothing about the problem. And what the classroom teacher is often expecting that somebody else in the form of a principal or assistant principal to do is extract a pound of flesh, which, by the way, extracting a pound of flesh solves no problems and teaches no skills either. So here we have it, right? What if instead we had a teacher sending a note to the office saying, I need time to solve a problem with one of my kids. I need coverage. Right. You know? I ask school principals and assistant principals frequently, which would you rather do? Sit behind your desk and deal with a long line of kids outside your office who have been sent to you by somebody else on problems you could not conceivably solve. Or get out from behind your desk and get back into the classroom and give that classroom teacher 15 minutes to solve that problem with his or her student. The reason this feels overwhelming right now is because we have allowed the pile of unsolved problems to grow very big. One of the things I said this morning is that it's not only, uh, unsolved problems are not only causing these kids to lose their mind, it's, it's unsolved problems that are causing classroom teachers to lose their mind as well. What's walking in the door is big piles of unsolved problems. So it took a while for those problems to accumulate. It's going to take a while for us to get through them and solve them. But we really have no choice because if we just keep doing what we've been doing, we just perpetuate the problem. We have to start somewhere. We have to be imaginative. We have to be creative. We have to be brave. We have to pay attention to what the research has been telling us about these kids for a very long time. Otherwise, we just keep doing stuff that everybody knows isn't working. You know, it's interesting because here in Sarasota, we have there's been a big push and 40 carats is a part of it actually um, over the past couple of years to get more clinical social workers and mental health counselors in elementary schools. And there's been a very big and very nice push for trauma informed care and all of that. And it's almost like I can actually see both sides, but it's almost as if, if you can train the teachers to do some of this, then you're going to maybe lessen the need for those. I mean, you're always going to need mental health counselors uh, in elementary schools, but also 
instead of sending them away to somebody else, if the teacher can do some of the work themselves for the simpler cases, then it also strengthens that relationship between the student and the teacher instead of sending them out to another person to deal with. That is absolutely right. So if Sarasota is hiring lots of mental health people to get these kids out of classrooms, count me out. I think there are going to be kids who need to get help outside of a classroom. Sure. But I think that the relationship between the classroom teacher and the student is paramount. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the easy ones. It's not just the easy ones that classroom teachers can be solving. Mm -hmm. Let's not sell classroom teachers short, I always say. (laughs) Right? Sure. Let's not sell them short. Uh, We're only talking about three steps here. What we're basically talking about is helping people learn how to do those three steps. The biggest obstacle that we're going to run into, and this is what we always hear, is A, I'm not a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? Given what's walking in schools these days, you kind of are. That may not be your training, but you kind of are. And the second thing is going to be time. What we do with every school who we help implement this model is we, first of all, we help them find buried time. Time that they weren't necessarily aware was there, during which they could be solving problems with kids. Before school, after school, during lunch, during recess, during the teacher's prep time, if the teacher has prep time. But we also help schools come up with systems of coverage so that classroom teachers have time to solve problems with their students. Yes, good that we have mental health professionals who can pick things up when we're not exactly sure what to do. I just think that if we're using those three steps, we're not going to feel like we don't know what to do very often. And it theoretically will pay off down the line because the next year those kids will be in a class and hopefully many of the skills that they learned previous in the previous year, they're not going to have the problem that they, the problems that they had the year before. That is correct. And so it kind of eventually you're going to get to the point where, there are fewer and fewer problems all the way down the line. But if we do not solve those problems, Mm -hmm. then we are simply kicking the can down the road. Yeah. Dr. Green, thank you very much for coming in. We really appreciate it. If anyone's interested in reading your books, it's Raising Human Beings is the latest one. It's great for parents and, you know, other caregivers, or if you're just interested, you've also got the explosive child. That's where you kind of started the whole, the model and lost at school, which dealt deals with, uh, the model in schools and then lost and found, which is, you know, lessons you've learned from dealing with schools with the model, right? Correct. Great. So check that out and also go to the CPS website, you know, read all about it. Lives in the balance.org. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Green. Thank you for doing this.